Hey friends, this is Matt Sewell, and you're listening to episode 76 of the podcast, the only podcast about popes where you'll find non-boring stories on the successors of St. Peter, and a reminder that all of the world's problems have happened plenty of times before. Our friends over at Catholic Balm Co. are back again as sponsors for this episode. You can find them at catholicbalm.co and enter Pope. P-O-P-E at checkout for 10% off your entire order. And though they've been mostly known for beard balms and oils, their legit new intercessors line of balms includes things like diaper cream, muscle cream, and bug balm among all the old standards. So once more, that's catholicbalm.co and the word Pope at checkout. Our Pope this week was in the chair of Peter for barely a moment in the great lifespan of Catholic history, but his humble heart and joyful demeanor has influenced each of the three popes that have followed him and put him firmly among the most memorable and beloved pontiffs of the last several centuries. This week on the Popecast, it's the other Pope named John Paul. Number 263, Venerable Pope John Paul I. Albino Luciani was born on October 17, 1912 in the town of Forno di Canale, in northern Italy. He was the oldest of four children born to his parents Giovanni and Bartolomea. He had two half-sisters from his father's previous marriage, and his life was almost over before it even began. In fact, the midwife who delivered Albino ended up giving him an emergency baptism the same day, after considering him to be in danger of death. His baptism was formalized at his parish church two days later. His is a poor, working-class family. Albino's dad was a bricklayer, who often had to find work abroad, and so left his mother to sadly care for the children alone much of the time. Albino's mom, no surprises here, was particularly devout, reportedly being considered by her friends before marriage to likely become a nun, and only agreed to marry the somewhat lax Catholic Giovanni on the condition that he would encourage their children in being brought up Catholic. By all accounts, Albino Luciani lived a normal Catholic upbringing, one that would be a recognizable memory for many of us, even today rising early for Mass, frequent recitation of the family rosary, and taking in the smells and bells of the parish church. Albino said years later that it was both the word and the example of his mother that helped him never to forget the lessons she taught him in that regard. And, as Raymond and Loretta Seebeck wrote in their book The Smiling Pope, quote, all his life he retained the most tender affection for her, end quote. And yet Albino was supposedly a rather rambunctious kid. The Seebecks recount a story in their book from his brother Eduardo, who had said young Albino was, quote, a high-spirited, mischievous child, full of pranks and given to pulling the girl's hair at school and fighting with his schoolmates. In fact, at an audience, while Pope, he said laughingly that he hoped no one would look up his conduct marks during his elementary schooling because they were so bad, end quote. Well, I suppose that means there's hope for just about anybody, right? Even still, Albino was known to be a kind brother and friend as well, Growing up in the aftermath of World War I, their region suffered particular devastation, and food was often scarce. One time when Albino was eight, he received a single slice of white bread as payment for doing a chore for a woman who lived nearby, something that was apparently almost entirely foreign in those parts back then. But instead of eating it on the spot, Albino instead brought it home and offered it to his little brother, who later said that, quote, he has never forgotten the taste and smell of that piece of bread, end quote. Albino's closest schoolmate, Giulio Bromezza, spoke equally fondly of him, recounting that they would sometimes skip school to go into the mountains and catch birds, saying that any day they were able to catch goldfinches was a great day. Giulio and Albino remained friends into adulthood, and in 1945, when Giulio was imprisoned in a German concentration camp, Albino, then a young priest, 
somehow arranged for a radio to be brought to his friend so that he could relay a message to his frantic wife, who hadn't heard from him in over a year. Somehow, Julio said, Albino had succeeded in finding me. When Albino was ten, he attended a mission at his parish church given by Franciscan friars, and it was there that he felt his call to the priesthood. So strongly, in fact, that he apparently would have just left with the priest right then if his parents had let him. His mother and the parish priest, however, said he must wait until he was eleven to enter the minor seminary. Plus, his dad needed to rubber stamp the move, something Albino was nervous about considering the eldest son was expected to contribute to supporting the family upon coming of age. But, to his great surprise and delight, in a letter bearing a stamp with Mary emblazoned upon it, Albino's father agreed, and agreed with great enthusiasm. Giovanni's only caveat? He wrote to Albino, quote, And I hope that when you are a priest, you will take the part of the poor and the workers, because Christ took their part. End quote. And so off he went, October 1st, 1923, very nearly the tender age of 11 years old. Albino Luciani began his road to the priesthood. Always a bright child, despite being completely unaware of his abilities, as one of his seminary professors would say, Albino excelled all through seminary life. Not quite 12 years later, he became Father Albino Luciani, being ordained a priest on July 7, 1935, by the same bishop who had confirmed him as a boy, in fact. He said his first Mass at his home parish in Canale, and spent the first six months of his priesthood there to serve as curate, as assistant to the pastor. From there, he was sent to teach at a college for minors, yes, minors, as an instructor of religion for two years, and then to the Gregorian Seminary in Belluno, the seat of his diocese, as vice-rector and seminary professor for the next ten years. He was, by all accounts, a fantastic teacher of the faith, especially to children and young minds. His first pastor, in fact, Don Augustin Bramezza, said about him once, quote, I gave him the job of entertaining the children, and he did it splendidly. He was a genius in telling stories, and he always knew how to draw a significant moral from them in a very humorous way. The children gathered around him, listening with mouths open, hanging on his every word. End quote. He was a patient but insistent instructor and who was no slouch on discipline, but was known well as the most level-headed of all the seminary's professors, being cited often as someone who had always offered an open door and as much help as was needed. During those ten years, Don Albino, as he was known then, taught a wide range of subjects, Everything from dogmatics, philosophy, and canon law to the history of art, sacred art, and catechetics. Outside of the classroom, he encouraged increased familiarity with mass media, printing, radio, and movies in particular back then, perhaps being ahead of his time in realizing the importance of the church leveraging such technology for the good of its members and for spreading the gospel. He also went to great lengths to encourage decorum, good manners, noting that it is absolutely essential to charity. He once said on the topic to his seminarians, quote, People greatly appreciate our courtesy and kindness. This is a little thing, but sometimes the success of our work depends on just these little things. Pay attention, be kind and polite with everyone, but subservient to no one. End quote. In 1947, Don Albino received his doctorate in sacred theology from the Greg in Rome, the Pontifical Gregorian University, and was later that year appointed chancellor of his diocese and named a monsignor by Pope Pius XII. The title change came, of course, with an outfit change as well and some newfound respect, but now Monsignor Albino wasn't overly concerned either way. In fact, when a seminarian mistakenly still called him Don Albino and was yelled at by his classmates, he came to the boy's defense, saying, quote, These titles are a farce. Men are like footballs, and if the football is deflated, people ignore it and leave it in a corner. If it is pumped up, everyone thinks they can use it as they please and kick it around. End quote. In 1948, Monsignor Albino was appointed to the head the catechetics office of the Diocese of Belluno, 
responsible for religious education and the passing on of the faith. And the following year, he released a book that translates into English as Catechetics in Crumbs, meant to form catechists, teachers of the faith, to pass on the Catholic faith to younger people. So popular was it for its simplicity and profundity that it was republished after his death by several Italian publishers. He would spend most of the next decade in that post, doing that job he loved really above everything else in his life as a priest. He would eventually be named Vicar General, that being number two to the bishop of his diocese, in 1954 and was put in charge of the cathedral there in 1956. And it was around this time that one Cardinal Angelo Roncalli came to Belluno to visit for a few days, one of which involved Monsignor Albino offering to drive the visiting cardinal around. The priest made such an impression on Roncalli that when the latter was elected pope in 1958 as the now St. John XXIII, he soon found a new home for Lucianius Bishop of Vittorio Veneto in northeastern Italy at the foot of the Italian Alps. Luciani, who had been somewhat sickly for most of his life, remember being in danger of death when he was uh, a day old, not even a day old, objected, of course, to the appointment, citing his health problems, specifically his respiratory issues. But John XXIII, having none of it, simply replied, If that's all it is, the bishop's palace is high on a hill, the air is wonderful, and will do you good. So he had no choice, of course, but to accept. And upon accepting the new post, John XXIII himself would consecrate Luciani a bishop two days after Christmas in 1958 in St. Peter's Basilica, three months almost to the day, in fact, after the future John Paul II was ordained a bishop in Poland. Luciani chose as his motto, humilitas, the same as the great St. Charles Borromeo, whom Bishop Luciani now considered a model bishop. He would attend all four sessions of the Second Vatican Council, which took place from 1962 to 1965, and made a few written interventions throughout the course of it. It was there, too, that he met and befriended the great Cardinal Stefan Wyszynski, primate of Poland and mentor to the future John Paul II. In the book The Smiling Pope, the Seebecks wrote that John Paul I gained a great appreciation for Poland and her people, saying, perhaps prophetically, quote, I am convinced that only the Polish Church can save us. I do not know how, but I am certain that Poland has a great mission to fulfill. In the coming years, they will speak much about this nation, which is so devoted to Our Lady. End quote. If only he knew. Luciani served in Vittorio Veneto for a full decade, during which time he gained an endless adulation from the people there. When pilgrims from that diocese later visited Rome during the pontificate of John Paul II, the Polish Pope said to them, quote, How lucky you are, you who for so many years were able to enjoy the presence of such a good father. End quote. Toward the end of his time there, in 1968 in particular, saw Luciani defending Pope St. Paul VI's release of the document Humanae Vitae, an opposition to endorsing the birth control pill for use in regulating births, being one of the first bishops in the world to circulate it to his priests, despite all the unpopular press that came with it. When the Cardinal Patriarch of Venice died in 1969, Luciani was surprised to find himself on the move once again, but he was about the only one surprised, given his growing popularity by that time. He objected to the move with Paul VI, just as he had done with John XXIII previously, but the sitting pope insisted yet again saying that a man like him was needed in Venice. He was installed in the new role in 1970 and was elevated to cardinal three years later, receiving the red hat on March 5, 1973. Cardinal Luciani lived his life in Venice just as he'd done in past assignments, although now the posh Venetians served as a rather stark contrast to his simple and austere existence. He opted to shirk much of the traditional trappings that the Patriarch of Venice had been associated with in the past, only accepting invitations to public events that raised money for the poor, 
and refusing to leverage his prestige for anything beyond that. He insisted on making himself available to anyone, literally anyone, who wished to see him, producing long lines of people outside his office almost daily, much to the chagrin of his secretary. The poor and the marginalized would come, laborers, those recently released from jail, former prostitutes, and the like. All people he legitimately counted as his friends. In all of this, an infectious joy and serenity was constantly on the countenance of Cardinal Luciani, even in tougher, uncomfortable situations. He would even say at one point, quote, It is not enough that I save my own soul. I must help others as much as I can. I will draw close to them with courtesy, with humility, full of respect for them, with the one desire to serve them. End quote. During his time as patriarch, most famously, he published the book Illustrissimi, a collection of columns he'd written for the Italian publication St. Anthony's Messenger, in the form of letters to famous people, fictional and real, past and present, including among them Jesus Christ himself, G.K. Chesterton, Mark Twain, and Charles Dickens, among many others. On August 6, 1978, Pope Paul VI died after a pontificate of 15 years. Four days later, Cardinal Luciani made for Rome. The conclave began a little more than two weeks later, commencing on August 25th. Cardinal Luciani, to his shock, was elected on the fourth ballot, the second vote of the second day, and the day prior had apparently been told by Cardinal Jaime Sin of the Philippines, quote, you will be the new pope, end quote. After accepting his election and saying to the cardinals present, may God forgive you for what you've done, he said specifically to Cardinal Sin, you are a prophet, but my reign will be a short one. Cue the spooky music. Anyway, he took the regnal name of John Paul I, each of those being uh, intentional. He was the first pope in history to take two names, honoring each of the past two popes, of course, and also the first to intentionally put the first after his name, reportedly saying at one point that a second John Paul would follow him before too long. What was most striking about the choice was how relatively obscure John Paul I was to the cardinal electors in the rest of the world. Many cardinals were listed as likely candidates, but the only one that had Luciani listed was the one in northern Italy's papers, where he had lived as a bishop. And yet, it was near unanimous among the cardinal electors that God's providence guided them to elect this smiling and humble man. Cardinal Voitiwa, soon to be John Paul II, said, quote, God chose Cardinal Luciani. At first he kept him, so to speak, in the shade, and he himself, the predestined one, sought to be hidden. Then all of a sudden the Lord revealed the face and name of him whom he had chosen. End quote. Cardinal Basil Hume of England had this to say after the conclave, quote, Seldom have I had such an experience of the presence of God. I am not one for whom the dictates of the Holy Spirit are self-evident. I am slightly hard-boiled on that. But for me, he was God's candidate. End quote. The conclave itself, as a quick aside, was unique in a few ways as well. It was the first conclave in 150 years to have at least two future popes participating, and it was the first in 1721, following the death of Pope Clement XI, in which three future popes were among the voting members, those, of course, being John Paul I, John Paul II, and Benedict XVI. John Paul I's initial acts as pope were to adjust some of the common trappings of the office of the papacy ones, which have been continued to this day. Among them were using I instead of the royal we in papal documents, opting for a simple installation instead of the formal coronation ceremony. And he was the last pope to use the sedia gestatoria, the pre-pope mobile chair upon which the pope was carried in order to be seen by crowds. He quickly earned himself the title of the smiling pope, hence the name of the book that we've alluded to earlier, for that palpable joy which those who had already known him had become so used to and which was now being shared with the whole world. But for reasons known only to God, John Paul I's pontificate was over nearly as soon as it began. 
On the night of September 28, 1978, just 33 days after his election as the 262nd successor of St. Peter, Pope John Paul I died likely of a heart attack. He was found the next morning by one of his housekeepers, still sitting up in bed with his reading light still on, glasses on the end of his nose, a slight smile on his face, and a few typewritten papers in his hand. Of course, with such a short pontificate and the Pope dying alone in his room, there were no shortage of conspiracy theories of potential foul play that surfaced over the years. Now, I love a good conspiracy theory, don't get me wrong. I'm fully confident there was indeed a second gunman on the grassy knoll, for instance. But when placed under scrutiny, whether it was JP1 being off by the mafia or the Freemasons or some such, all of the conspiracy theories fell flat. The Pope had died of natural causes, three weeks shy of his 66th birthday. John Paul I currently sits in a tie for 10th place on the list of shortest papacies in the history of the Catholic Church. And his death made 1978 just the 13th instance of a year of three popes in the history of Catholicism, that being a calendar year, of course, where three different men reign as pope. But he was still able to make a lasting impact despite the short stint, one that's echoed throughout the ensuing decades. Even though John Paul I gave just 19 addresses during his short reign, the things he did preach and write on are packed with important insights into living a life of virtue and entrusting one's life to God. So pivotal, in fact, was the person of Pope John Paul I that his cause for canonization is already well underway. It formally began in 1990 with a petition from the bishops of Brazil, of all places, where he had spent two weeks as a cardinal in 1975 and clearly made an impression. The cause moved forward in 2002 with a collection of documents and testimonies related to John Paul I's life, and the following year saw the late Pope receive the title of Servant of God after the Vatican's Congregation for the Causes of Saints determined that there were no objections to the cause moving ahead. And then, in 2017, just four years ago, Pope Francis officially declared John Paul I a venerable, approving the determination by the congregation that he had indeed lived a life of heroic virtue. For the next steps to take place, beatification and canonization, miracles that can be attributed to the person's intercession beyond all ability for medical or scientific explanation, typically are required. And actually, America Magazine just a couple of weeks ago, at least at the time we're recording this, published an article noting that the investigation into a supposed miraculous healing of an Argentinian girl in 2017 is in its final stage. That healing, interestingly enough, happened just days after that proclamation of Pope Francis and happened in his former home of Buenos Aires, no less. The investigation into that miracle is expected to be approved by Pope Francis later this year, according to the article, and that would likely put his beatification on the docket for 2022. Now, lest anyone think that the church is getting trigger-happy with canonizing popes all of a sudden, I want to share some food for thought. One, I'm reminded of the line by G.K. Chesterton that each generation is converted by the saint who contradicts it most. The generation in which we live, especially if we consider it to be the past century instead of just the past 20 or 30 years, has been rife with more secularism, more persecution of Christians, and more anxiety and depression, broadly speaking, than any other time in human history. I don't think that's arguable. Granted, humanity suffers from different mutations of the same sin in every age. Heck, that's one major reason that this show exists, right? But our time is unique in the history of the world, so why wouldn't we be gifted, as I am convinced that we have been, with a sort of new golden age of the papacy? With men in the chair of Peter who, despite, you know, granted, potentially not always being good governors or administrators, are nevertheless men of deep and abiding humility, poverty of spirit, great faith, and great virtue. Read more than just the surface-level description of any 20th century pope, 
from Pius X to John the Twenty-Third, Paul the Sixth, on down to both of the John Pauls, one will find, at any rate, a common thread in large part summed up by this answer to a question on John Paul I's holiness that one Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger answered two years before he would be elected to succeed John Paul II. Ratzinger said, quote, Personally, I am altogether convinced that he was a saint because of his great goodness, simplicity, humility, and for his great courage, because he also had the courage to say things with great clarity, even going against current opinions, and also for his great culture of faith. He was not just a simple parish priest who had become patriarch by chance. He was a man of great theological culture and of great pastoral sense and experience. His writings on catechesis are precious, and his book, Elastrosimi, which I read immediately after his election, is very fine. Yes, I am convicted that he is a saint. End quote. Perhaps it's a case in point, but either way, because we like to end every episode of the Popecast this way, here's a quote on hope from John Paul I himself, given at a general audience in Rome on September 20th, 1978, eight days before his death. He says, quote, Today I will speak to you of this virtue of hope, which is obligatory for every Christian. I said that hope is obligatory. That does not mean that hope is ugly or hard. On the contrary, anyone who lives it travels in an atmosphere of trust and abandonment, saying with the psalmist, Lord, you are my rock, my shield, my fortress, my refuge, my lamp, my shepherd, my salvation. Even if an army were to encamp against me, my heart will not fear, and if the battle rises against me, even then I am confident. You will say, is not this psalmist exaggeratedly enthusiastic? Is it possible that things always went right for him? No, they did not always go right. He, too, knows and says so that the bad are often fortunate and the good oppressed. He even complained to the Lord about it sometimes. He went so far as to say, Why are you sleeping, Lord? Why are you silent? Wake up, listen to me, Lord. But his hope remained, firm, unshakable. To him and to all those who hope can be applied what St. Paul said of Abraham. In hope, he believed against hope. You will say further, how can this happen? It happens because one is attached to three truths. God is almighty. God loves me immensely, and God is faithful to promises. And it is He, the God of mercy, who kindles trust in me, so that I do not feel lonely or useless or abandoned, but involved in a destiny of salvation which leads to paradise one day. End quote. Well, that's a wrap for the story of the other Pope named John Paul. We really hope you enjoyed it, especially if you're a new listener. Uh, If you haven't already, please leave us a review uh, rating over at iTunes. It makes sure that more people can find the show. And also, thank you again to all of our patrons, especially our newest patron, Joe. Without you guys, we could do none of this. If you'd like to support the Popecast too, helping us cover our production costs, and of course, also getting you know early access to every episode, some great Popecast swag in the process, be sure to check us out at patreon.com slash the Popecast. And as we head out today, let us pray for the intercession of Venerable Pope John Paul I, that we too might be beacons of hope, of humility, of simple joy to our neighbors. Our world needs it. Until next time. <laughs>